Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. The world is becoming more and more interconnected, largely due to our reliance on digital technology. Think mobile banking, digital control of infrastructures like dams, and the use of electronic medical records in hospitals. And while I love this because writing in paper charts is literally the worst, especially since I have terrible handwriting and I'm a bad speller, this reliance on technology has created a whole new set of ways to create disasters. Cyber disasters. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with two, yes two, guests who are both doctors and hackers, Dr. Christian Damoff and Dr. Jeff Tully from UC San Diego, about how our definition of disaster needs to evolve in order to fit a world where almost anything can be compromised and malicious hackers target businesses, critical services like hospitals, government organizations, or even schools every day. After this episode, I would encourage you to think hard about all the places where your personal information is safeguarded solely by a password and how a cybersecurity disaster could impact you. Let's get to the episode. Thank you so much for coming on The Disaster Project. I'm really happy that we actually found a time to set this up. I think what I've realized is that trying to organize things with other physicians is like the hardest thing ever. And if you throw in like different time zones, then you can pretty much forget about it. It's kind of impossible. So I'm actually really proud that we got this done. So we already won. How are you guys? I'm doing great. I've had a great day and it's great to be with you and I appreciate your patience. Um, it's wonderful to be here with my best friend, Christian Demeff. And so I'm really excited. Oh, how can I not echo similar sentiments after a comment like that? Yeah, I'm excited to be here today. I'm doing all right. Larissa, thank you so much for inviting yeah, us. Yeah, Larissa, you're awesome. We are just excited to talk about, you know, obviously something we're passionate about, but also something we don't know a lot about, not formally being disaster trained. And so I think as you ask us more and more questions, I think both sides of the disaster world and the cyber world will see opportunities for future collaboration and cross-education. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of this new wild, wild west where we're talking about this dystopian tech future and ransomware attacks and cyber attacks on hospitals and things. And there's just still a lot to learn. And it's things like this, like this podcast that are really going to help people raise awareness, learn more, and then also make their mark on the future as they can contribute their own expertise to this. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being here. I think we should start with this question because I'm just dying to know this. But what came first? Did you guys start off as medical nerds or did you start off as cybersecurity hacker, computer geeks? How did you get into this niche that you're in? Jeff's just shaking his head. He doesn't want to embark on this. Uh, you know, I, I want to say we were geeks first, for sure, before medicine. I, we joke around and I think this story just becomes more and more grand every time we tell it. So what is our kind of origin story? If you ever met us, you kind of know we're the same people. Jeff jokes that he's me and I'm him, except he's better looking. I think I can probably agree with that. But it all starts kind of the first or second week of medical school. You know, we meet, we bond over a shared interest in cartoons, essentially, which is a funny thing to bond it over in, in medical school. And ever since then, we're kind of inseparable. We found out earlier, we shared a passion for technology, for computer hacking. And with that passion, we were able to kind of follow various research ideas, crazy projects that we wanted to embark on. And through that kind of crafted this niche of ours, which is kind of healthcare cybersecurity. So where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood, kind of what happens when you combine malicious computer hackers and hyper-connected healthcare. And so that's kind of our origin story. It's been, we've been, we started school in 2010, so it's been a long time. Yeah, he's being a little bit modest. Um, I was always technologically savvy and into computers and building computers and doing things with computers. But Christian is and has always been a true hacker in the purest sense of the word from the standpoint of what that means as a member of a community that is really dedicated towards not just technology, but breaking apart technology and understanding how it works and finding ways in which it can be made to work better in part by exploiting vulnerabilities in technology. And that's something we can probably turn back to at some point. But this idea of what does it really mean to be a hacker is something that Christian taught me and brought me into um, in those early days of medical school a million years ago now. And that really is, I think, what set the seed for us to explore this unique niche. It's not just about being sort of technologically minded, it's about having that unique perspective into being a hacker. 
did you always know that you were going to try to incorporate hacking into your future careers or did it just kind of evolve into this? Oh, I had no idea. Often, uh, I think a lot of your listeners will probably sympathize. The end of a long shift, you're kind of completely drained and you're walking out and you're rethinking a lot of your life and the decisions that you made. If I had known you could have made an entire career computer hacking, uh, maybe my life would have been different. But no, I had no idea that hacking was going to play such a big part, not only of my career in medicine, but just as my own personal identity. You're growing up, you find other like-minded people, and those ended up being computer hackers for me. People from every part of the socioeconomic spectrum, from every race and gender. I mean, these are just names of handles on internet forums and on chat rooms on IRC. And we all shared this kind of common passion, which was what Jeff mentioned, understanding technology to such a level where you can see where it's weak. You can see where you can change it, manipulate it to do things it wasn't intended that are things you want to do or things you want to explore just because you're curious. And so, no, I had no idea that growing up as a hacker and being on those geeky forums would ever really inform my career moving forward. But nowadays you can make a fantastic living as a professional hacker. So people do that as a legitimate full-time job. They get paid to hack banks and other critical infrastructure. And cybersecurity is a very hot job market right now because of how much it plays into not just healthcare, but finance. Every vertical of our economy is now digitized and has cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And as more and more of these high-profile hacks become more and more reported, it's just raised in everyone's consciousness how important cybersecurity really is. And I think as a complement to that, it's really interesting how being physicians has opened doors for us in some of the communities that we've traveled in, in a way that has really allowed us to develop a niche where I like to joke that in a room full of hackers, I'm the best doctor, unless Christian is there. And in a room full of doctors, I'm the best hacker, unless Christian is there. Um, and really the ability to kind of travel between both worlds and have competency and illiteracy in each of those spaces has developed into a pretty unique sort of niche in our careers on both the clinical and the technical side of things. So you had mentioned cybersecurity, which is the topic of this. So what is cybersecurity and why should anyone care? Oh, it's such a such a broad question. So, uh, but a great one because I think if you had to distill down at its essence, what is cybersecurity? It kind of is best exemplified in what we call the CIA triad. This has been a concept uh, that's used to, to teach people about cybersecurity, and there's really three fundamental parts of it. So it's a triangle. It's called the CIA triad. And no, it's not the government agency, the CIA. It stands for Confidentiality, Integrity, and Availability, CIA. This is a model used to teach cybersecurity, and I think it's a useful one. C for confidentiality, you don't want people getting access to information that they shouldn't. You want certain things to be able to be confidential. Now, for an individual like a patient, you don't want someone having your electronic health record, for instance. There's sensitive information in there. You don't want that to be shared publicly, so you want to be confidential. That also extends to many other types of things, for instance, government records and classifications. C, confidentiality. Integrity is the next one, I. Integrity is you don't want people to change or delete data that they shouldn't have access to or the ability to do that. So you don't want someone going in and changing your patient's allergy list to have a bunch of allergies they don't have or to delete allergies they actually have. So that's integrity. We want our data to have integrity. The last one's availability. And this is going to play a lot into the future part of this conversation when we talk about ransomware. But there are certain things, services, things like CT scanners or electronic health records, for example, those are uh, loosely called services in this concept, and you want them to be available. When you're having a stroke, you want to have a CT scanner to rule out if it's a hemorrhagic or an ischemic stroke, right? If you don't have that CT scanner, there's an issue of availability. Ransomware attacks, which we'll talk a lot about in a little bit, they can impact availability. So when you ask, what is cybersecurity? To me, it's kind of the CIA triad. It's talking about how malicious hackers, not just hackers, but the bad ones, change things either by attacking confidentiality, integrity, or availability. Anything else, Jeff? No, I think that's I think that's good. And cybersecurity is sort of the science and the the process of understanding ways in which these systems can be taken advantage of and then moving to shore up or protect against those. It is kind of a little bit like boiling the ocean. We will never be able to design or code software that does not have flaws that can be exploited. We will never be able to 
have perfectly secure systems, but we can continue to assess and remediate the ways in which our systems are vulnerable and be very proactive to find out how um, we can minimize disruption and recover as quickly as possible in the inevitable situation that we do have a, a compromise or a vulnerability be exploited. This is obviously the disaster project. So I guess the next question is why are cyber attacks related to disasters? Are they really disasters? Cybersecurity incidents result in disruption of workflows. And I think at its core, a disaster is a large scale disruption to our ability to do what we do, which is deliver care for patients. Um, speaking specifically in the context of the healthcare sector. A cybersecurity incident can be as small as a single patient record being unauthorized and obtained by someone who's not entitled to, to view that information, but it can be as significant as a widespread disruption to the internal network of a hospital affecting its electronic medical records or a potential compromise of a medical device used in the care of patients that can really disrupt our ability to, to care for patients and may even result in worse outcomes. So in its most extreme sense and manifestation, I think there are many similarities to a cybersecurity incident um, with other things like earthquakes or bioterrorism or wildfires, insofar as the care that patients receive may be degraded and it may result in unfortunate worse outcomes. I completely agree. And it's because we become so dependent on those technologies to deliver care. The thought of a cyber attack impacting clinical care 30 years ago was laughable because most of the workflows were on paper. You don't really need computers to do most of that. But now everything is digitized. Everything is on computers and is connected. We're the generation of physicians that have probably never used paper records. I'll speak for myself. I've never used paper records before. And every time there's a downtime and we have to transition to that manual workflow, efficiency goes out the window. This has been talked about time and time again with some of the larger profile cyber attacks on hospitals. It's just how disruptive it can be. The other thing I wanted to bring up is that in my mind, it's almost... It's almost a very special subset of disaster that requires us to think differently. We can't just apply our status quo disaster skills and knowledge to tackling some of these cyber attacks because, quite frankly, they're different in some ways. When you have a hurricane, for example, you have some type of lead time. You see a hurricane developing. You have some time to prepare. You have a general estimation of where it's going to go and how long it'll be there. Cyber attacks have no geographic predilection. You're just as vulnerable in the middle of the United States in Tornado Alley as you are on the coast. The only thing that is a prerequisite for that is internet connectivity, which all hospitals have nowadays. Furthermore, it can strike at any time without warning. You have no lead time. It all takes is a, a really angry group of cyber criminals to, a, to decide to attack your hospital, and then there you go. And then lastly, we're talking about intelligent adversaries that are attacking your organization. It's not some natural phenomenon. These attackers can change their tactics. They can hide. You can think they're gone and they show right back up again. And they can change the types of vulnerabilities they're exploiting or the different systems that they're attacking. And so what I'm trying to say is that our traditional playbooks for how we respond to disasters are probably ill-equipped to truly and efficiently respond to many of the wide-scale cyber disasters we're seeing nowadays. So my challenge and plea to those listening to the podcast today is think about how we can examine our paradigm, examine our current status quo playbooks, and how we need to really update them for the future of connected healthcare, because uh, it's only going to get more and more dependent more and more vulnerable. Yeah, I can definitely vouch for the fact that whenever we have downtime, like the ED completely shuts down. They do have paper charts, but at that point, like all the nurses just go on break and like nothing happens for the next three to four hours until they actually get the computer systems back up. And I am always on when it's downtime and it is terrifying. I guess the next question is, where do you think the vulnerabilities in the healthcare system are? It sounds like there are a lot of them, but where are the specific places that healthcare needs to be focused on to shore up those vulnerabilities? There are many areas that are shared amongst other types of sectors, right? Like some of the productivity software, email platforms, a lot of email phishing attacks. 
are unfortunately successful and result in the ability for attackers to access the network and get patient information. So there's kind of this set of targets that are similar across multiple different sectors. But there are many medical devices that are used in patient care that have network connectivity. There are many institutions that have their electronic medical records that are hosted on cloud-based servers. And there are an increasing number of consumer wearable devices and different types of medical devices that share information between patients and doctors, both in the outside and clinical settings. So I think kind of separating those into the highest impact areas, what is the highest yield or most impactful device in a hospital, something like an MRI scanner or a cath lab suite, you know, that probably deserves a separate set of practices and attention uh, and procedures from the email platform that people use versus the electronic medical record. There's just kind of a, a diverse and almost overwhelming number of different targets. I completely agree with Jeff. And I wanna highlight one particular threat that I've already alluded to, and it's the tip of everyone's tongue right now when they talk about healthcare cybersecurity, and that's ransomware. For those of you listeners that aren't familiar with it, there's a concept called malware. So mal, bad, where, where, so like software. So bad software. And this is software that's intentionally designed to wreak havoc. And the way it does that is that it'll infect a system by exploiting a vulnerability. And once it attacks that system, it goes and it cryptographically locks up the system, makes it so that you can't use that system anymore. So if that's a workstation in the radiology suite, if it's a workstation in the ER, if it's a server that's doing email for your enterprise, whatever system it may be gets infected with ransomware, it'll lock it up. And until you pay a monetary fee, usually something in the form of Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, until you pay the ransom, the malicious hacker won't give you access to your system anymore. So we've seen dozens of these types of attacks every year on large scale healthcare organizations and this is increasing with frequency. There's a JAMA paper published last year highlighting that the rate of these attacks on healthcare is increasing. It's not decreasing. And uh, it's our own personal belief. And we haven't seen anyone be able to validate this in the literature yet. But we believe the attack duration is also increasing. So attacks that might have at their very inception around 2015, 2016, maybe, maybe lasted a couple of days. Now they're lasting like a month. And so that's incredibly disruptive to a healthcare organization to be down for a month, have those core systems not operable. And so I just want to bring up that I think that's one of the biggest threats to healthcare right now. And it's not the loss of patient information. It's not the breach of patient records. Oh, that's important to us. The threat of ransomware attacks on hospitals truly impact the ability to deliver high quality care. And those with life-threatening, time-sensitive medical conditions think... Uh, STEMI, heart attacks, strokes, sepsis, those types of things, those patients could be impacted by these ransomware attacks. That's the, really the key that we want to focus on is anyone in the disaster space, anyone in, in the medical space truly recognizes that there are patients at increased risk and not having those digital tools at our fingertips could compromise their care. So let's start with ransomware. How does ransomware get into the healthcare system? How is it introduced? There are a number of different mechanisms, most commonly it is something as simple as a malicious email that has a download link or um, some other direction to a website attached. There are situations in which hackers are able to gain access to networks through other means, including exploitation of security vulnerabilities. And there are other situations where hackers use techniques called social engineering to gain access to networks. And that essentially is sort of non-technical ways of impersonating employees or tricking people into granting them passwords or other means of accessing the system just virtually by um, sophisticated con artistry. So the mechanisms by which ransomware infections occur are diverse. The ways in which we need to protect against them are also diverse, but most commonly it's going to be something as simple as a phishing email that we don't recognize and accidentally uh, grant access to an outsider. Essentially, anyone in that healthcare system could get this email and be like, oh, I should click on this link. So it could come from anywhere. The janitor could get an email and 
click on something and then everything's infected. Is that how it works? Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons that this is such a big challenge is because most networks are only secure as the people who use them. All it takes is is one instance of, of someone not recognizing or picking up on something as simple as an email. There are tools, obviously. Um, there are ways in which people who are experts um, in information security professionals are working daily to protect networks. So there are many, many types of filters and tools that we can use to block many of these types of entrees. But uh, in some situations, you know, it can be a single single person just making an unfortunate choice. What are some of those tools? There's a lot of tools. So and that's another plea that we have for your listeners is we recognize there's a lot of constraints in healthcare. Uh, new legislation that leads to more regulation, more things you have to do, more videos that you have to watch for training. But for instance, cybersecurity controls that get rolled out to your enterprise, for the most part, are going to be designed to prevent exactly this type of attack. And one of the ones that may be at your shop that frustrates you, but is very important is something called multi-factor authentication. So Jeff mentioned earlier that one of the entries to a network might be to steal passwords from one of the users. Maybe they'll trick you into going to a website and putting in your username and password by a phishing email. You do so, and then they have access to that. They've tricked you. Well, multi-factor authentication is an extra layer to prove who you are to a system. And so a lot of times we'll see this in healthcare organizations. You may have a, a text message pushed to your phone and you have to enter some code, potentially use an application that sends you a message saying, hey, are you trying to log in right now? Is this you? Lots of banking organizations and other types of websites also deploy this multi-factor authentication, but it's an extra layer of protection. If you give a malicious hacker your credentials, and they try to log into this service and it's protected by multi-factor authentication, you're going to get a ping out of nowhere that says, hey, are you trying to log in? And you're going to say, no, I'm not. Someone must have gotten my credentials and therefore I'm going to block this attack. That's one type of technology that could be used to thwart something like a ransomware attack. But there are also others that your listeners may be familiar with, things like antivirus, anti-malware. There's a lot of technology you can put into email servers now that already filter these types of phishing emails or malicious URLs out before they even get to users. And that's just one of literally thousands of different types of technology, software, and tools that we can use to help protect these organizations. The problem is, like Jeff mentioned, they're only as good as the users that deploy them. And then also they're, they're expensive. Larissa, I was speaking with you earlier, and one of the things you mentioned to me is just how important disaster disparities are to you. And, you know, we talk a lot about cyber haves and have nots and that rural critical access hospitals that frequently run the red, they don't make money. They don't have access to a lot of these amazing tools that give them added protection against malicious hackers. And so what we see is a true cyber disparity, if you will, between organizations that can defend themselves and organizations that can't, and that the threat uh, that they face is quite different. And the compromise that one would have or the other could be very, very impactful to that rural community, for example, if those hackers decide to take that one particular hospital out. So when an attack happens and like there is ransomware and everything basically is locked down, is the only way to get around that to pay? Or are there other ways that you can kind of break through that and get your information back? Yeah, that's a great question. Many hospitals and other types of large institutions with big networks will do very common backups of those networks. And in certain situations, those backups may be stored or protected in ways that they are not affected by the ransomware attack. And so backups can be used to restore some of the systems. And that's a very time and resource intensive process. And there are other ways with other different types of security professionals or firms that you may be able to hire to come in and see if there are ways to circumvent the ransomware. But unfortunately, we have seen just based on reporting and in sort of discussions with law enforcement community and others, many institutions do feel that they are in a position where the only way they can have a timely restoration of their services is to pay that ransom. So that's kind of insult on, on top of injury there. Um, and the reason that we are seeing a proliferation of these types of attacks, um, and one of the reasons why healthcare is increasingly targeted and is often the most targeted sector um, amongst all of the critical infrastructure sectors is because there is this financial incentive because these hospitals can sometimes not afford to be down. And so they will pay that ransomware. You know, it's kind of like the old uh, Dillinger quote, why are you robbing 
the banks, well, it's because where the money is. Um, and that's that's the same situation for some of the malicious actors attacking healthcare. When someone does this and they lock the whole healthcare system out of the information that they need, has there been any evidence to show that that impacts patient care? Like, do more people die during those times? Or are STEMIs not treated as promptly? My response to back to that is we are really at the beginning of collecting an evidence base for this. This is a pretty hard thing to study. Generally speaking, when a hospital healthcare organization is hit with a ransomware attack, for instance, uh, the general wisdom that their counsel tells their employees and tells their executives is not to talk about it. Uh, it opens them up to a lot of liability. There are class action lawsuits. They're going to be actively negotiating a ransomware payment, these types of things. So the general wisdom uh, that is told to these organizations that are hit are not to talk about it at all. Furthermore, Generally speaking, I mentioned there's a lot of lawsuits that happen from this. And so reporting out that your uh, your STEMIs or your strokes did worse as a consequence of the ransomware attack, it's generally seen as something that these organizations want to avoid as bad press and further inviting lawsuits. So it's very hard to study this. There is a very early stage research uh, that's out there, and we're, we've published some of it to discuss what exactly happens to a ransomware attack, but we actually had to go into the periphery of a ransomware attack and measure its effects. So we published a paper, we can make sure we get it to you, Larissa, you can put it in the show notes if you like. We published a paper in JAMA Open in May that showed what the regional effects of ransomware attacks were when it came to emergency department census throughput metrics, as well as our stroke metrics. And what do I mean by that? So we uh, at our organization in 2021 was adjacent to an organization that had a large ransomware attack. Literally, our two hospitals are very close to the five hospitals that went down during a ransomware attack that lasted about a month. I'll tell you, I was working that Monday that it happened, and I have never had a worse shift in my, my emergency department career. We were just overflowing with patients that had to come to our institution because they couldn't go to theirs as they were under ransomware attack. We measured things like diversion hours in our county, and we saw huge spikes in the number of hours hospitals were on diversion during the ransomware attack. Uh, we saw many more patients in the emergency department. Those patients waited longer to see our, us, our physicians. They stayed longer. And we also saw a huge amount of increase in the stroke codes and confirmed strokes as a consequence because two of their centers were stroke centers. They couldn't see patients. They had to divert all their stroke patients to us. What am I trying to get at here? Is that the research is really in its infancy. The best we have now is showing what happens to hospitals around ransomware attacks. My hope is that some of your listeners here on this podcast can go back to their organizations and really start to collect data, publish in the peer-reviewed literature, because we need much more evidence around this. We are confident, unfortunately, that people are being impacted, mortality and morbidity is uh, unfortunately happening in patients at hospitals under ransomware attack. We just need to document it. And Jeff, I don't know if you wanted to mention the Alabama case. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of sort of these one-off anecdotal reports that are more often mentioned in the press. Um, there is a very tragic case of a mother in Alabama who was um, delivering her baby during a ransomware attack that affected some of the fetal heart monitors and the reliability of the information they were receiving may or may not have led to a very unfortunate outcome in that case. But I just think, as Christian mentioned, we we are in the infancy of building the type of research apparatus that is needed to study this on a population health basis. And it's very, very challenging. You know, during COVID, everyone is really rushing to share all of the different uh, statistics and outcomes and characteristics of the patients they were taking care of so that we could all learn more about this disease during the pandemic. And there's just a very different willingness to collaborate and share data when it comes to something associated with such a high organizational and reputational cost as a cybersecurity incident. And so we're really working hard to build the relationships, build the networks and figure out a way in which we can get data on a scale large enough to really be able to drill down and say, what impact do these types of things have on outcomes? Because if it's not something that ultimately affects patient outcomes, then we don't want to, you know, 
cause a lot of alarm or have people focus on something as expensive and as costly as this can be if it doesn't really impact the care of patients. But just from every single person we've talked to who has been in a situation like this, from Christian, you know, being next to one to those who have been in institutions that have been hit, this is such a disruptive event that it it, it has to have a significant impact on outcomes. We just need to be able to characterize that with the data. So it kind of sounds like the legal ramifications are kind of slowing down the research. So you don't have the data because hospitals are worried about sharing information about attacks that maybe they have experienced because if patients hear about this, then maybe they're going to sue or, you know, other types of things like that. Is that what you're thinking? Absolutely. There is a significant legal component to these incidents from the standpoint of patients engaging in class action lawsuits or the price of cybersecurity insurance skyrocketing after something like this. And there is just kind of this intangible reputational effect in an era of sort of hyper competitive large hospital organizations. If you are the hospital in a region that's been hit and is in the news for the last month because you aren't able to schedule outpatient appointments or because your patients aren't able to have surgery, that is very, very damaging. And so there is this reluctance, and it's understandable, uh, but there is definitely a reluctance to kind of fully explore and discuss outside of the boundaries of the internal institution you know, what some of these events have resulted in from a, from a patient safety standpoint because of that legal liability and that, and that reputational component. Christian, you had said that in your ED, you were close to a different hospital that had undergone one of these attacks and you were getting patients that were diverted to you, was essentially the whole hospital like evacuated like it would be for like if there were a fire threat or something like that and they just emptied the whole hospital because they weren't able to actually care for patients? Or was there some level of care that they could still provide? Yeah, they can still provide some level of care. And um, despite its disruption to their core system, they still have to take care of the patients that were in the facility. So to my knowledge, they did not evacuate patients. They did uh, divert patients. So all the EMS traffic for a certain period of time came went to other hospitals. They went on EMS divert. And then also there was a lot of outpatient care that couldn't happen. And so those individuals had to get diverted. And so it wasn't like an evacuation, like their whole hospital was on fire. They had to get all these ICU patients out. Uh, so they did go down to their paper workflows for that, but they weren't doing, you know, surgery cases, for instance, they weren't taking kind of uh, anything that wasn't, uh, was elective, they weren't doing, they were doing like emergent take backs and things like that. So to my knowledge, I haven't heard of any widespread evacuations from a hospital under a ransomware attack. But one thing I think is important to highlight to your listeners that really focus on disasters is that cyber attacks, not only do they not have a geographic predilection and there's no warning, they also can scale very quickly. And so what we've seen in some of the larger scale attacks is that it's not just one hospital that gets hit. It's often a lot of hospitals under the same IT infrastructure. So if a, if a hospital is owned by a system and there are 10 hospitals under one system, they're going to share a lot of that IT infrastructure. One hospital gets impacted, it spreads to others. And that's what we saw at uh, in San Diego County. Is it? it wasn't just one hospital, it's five under the same uh, healthcare delivery organization banner. What does that mean in regards to scaling? Well, if you have a coordinated cyber attack that impacts multiple hospitals in a region, you could see how impactful that could be at the public health level. If all of a sudden your capacity to see new patients or elective surgeries all of a sudden goes out of the window for 40% of your entire county, for instance. And so I could see it very easily being within a sophisticated cyber adversary or potentially a state actor, you know, someone coordinated cyber attack from a, a country, for instance, attacking critical healthcare infrastructure. All of a sudden we could talk about 200, 300 hospitals getting impacted at once, be truly disruptive on a pretty catastrophic scale. And we did see that. I'll just say we saw a example of that in 2017 during the WannaCry attack where um, something like 80 of the hospitals in the National Health Service in the UK were affected by the same ransomware. And that was a kind of a perfect example of a disparate geographic effect um, that had some pretty significant consequences from the standpoint of, I think they were canceling surgeries, they were delaying outpatient cancer 
um, intakes. And um, that was something where you could see that uh, the disruption was substantial across a large geographic footprint and, and numerous hospitals under the same institution. I forget who I was talking to, but I was talking to someone recently who said that essentially like a cybersecurity compromise could replicate a natural disaster. They compared it to Katrina. So they were like, well, if you think about it, if you hacked their AC units and it was summer, then the temperature in every single one of those hospitals that was connected to them would go up and you would cause a mass disaster in that way. So essentially you could get the same kind of outcome with cybersecurity compromise as you could with a natural disaster. Do you agree with that or is that made up? Oh, no, that's uh, that's definitely a big concern, not just of us, but many other critical infrastructure uh, operators are very concerned about this issue. As I mentioned earlier, it's not, you know, healthcare is so hyper-connected. Well, it's not just healthcare. There's so many other verticals, whether or not be power generation, like you mentioned, the controlling of cyber-physical systems like dams. There are just so many examples in our modern world where software's running physical things where if they should fail could have catastrophic consequences for an entire region to my knowledge there has not been an attack like that however there have been some publicly reported smaller examples you'll have to look it up specifically and reference it in the show notes if you want to mention this particular piece but there has been proof of state actors um, attacking dams essentially, and that there's evidence that they were poking and prodding and looking at how they could impact those systems uh, that if they should fail would lead to things like flooding. There are many examples of cyber espionage and other types of things where, again, it's the cyber physical interaction. It's where these physical systems are controlled by vulnerable software that is remotely exploitable. And so, no, it, it very much is the case. And you can also imagine kind of cascading consequences. So if a generator is hit, if a public utility is hit with water, for instance, or power, how that could potentially exhaust the resources of a hospital to respond to that disaster and then lead to some issue, right? So if the power was out for a large municipality, and then subsequently the generators of a hospital were then exhausted, you can imagine what we'd have to do with all those patients in the ICU on ventilators, for example. And so there really is this connection between the cyber and physical world that we all have to be worried about, especially with critical infrastructure. So we talked about how cybersecurity can impact like a whole healthcare system, but what about an individual patient? Can a hacker hack a medical device? Christian and I first got involved in this space and interested in this space based on some of the work that was being done back in the early 20-teens by security researchers who were looking at implantable medical devices and realizing that as they become connected with things like Bluetooth functionality or the ability to connect to the internet, they had some of the same vulnerabilities that were being explored in other devices. So there actually has been now for over a decade, a body of work about things like implantable insulin pumps, or pacemakers with security researchers who showed vulnerabilities in the software and hardware that if exploited could result in harm to the patients who are using them. And your listeners may be familiar with sort of, you know, popularized TV adaptations of uh, people getting hacked and assassinated with their pacemakers. But in reality, uh, Vice President Cheney, who is no stranger to cardiac rhythm devices, he did have the wireless functionality on his pacemakers uh, disabled by his security staff for similar concerns. And there are a number of different links we can make available to you and your listeners. But um, the medical device security space is actually one that has been explored even before ransomware became prominent. And I think this is another uh, success story that Christian can talk a little bit more about where hackers have collaborated with medical device manufacturers and regulators like the FDA to raise some of these concerns and actually do a much better job in educating the manufacturers on how to produce devices that are more and more secure. And the FDA has really jumped on cybersecurity as an issue that they need to be involved in. And so this is kind of one of the success stories that we point to as we talk about these issues, that medical devices are demonstrably safer from a cybersecurity perspective than they were 10 years ago. Yeah, 100%. Just want to echo that 
uh, to me, a lot of this conversation is pretty doom and gloom. It's like we're vulnerable. There are a lot of issues. Hospitals are being attacked. Medical devices are vulnerable. But if there's a success story out of this so far, it's what the FDA has done, in my opinion, on regulating medical device cybersecurity. And so they were in the trenches long before this was a popularized topic and it got all this press and attention. The FDA recognized that there were increasing threats with connected medical devices and threats to insulin pumps and pacemakers and even infusion pumps uh, was, was something that the FDA should do something about. And so under the leadership of Suzanne Schwartz, Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, you know, they charted a, a trajectory to be far ahead of any other government agency in telling device manufacturers, hey, you have to do the right thing. You have to make your devices resilient to cyber attacks because patient lives depend on it. And so we've seen a lot of success in the regulatory space. There's a lot of actual congressionally mandated authority given to the FDA in this. And they've been pushing the bar and making medical device manufacturers make much more secure devices. Now, I hope that that continues. I don't think anyone thinks it's slowing down. But what we really see is a lot of other parts of healthcare lagging behind. And so, for instance, the minimum cybersecurity standards for hospitals arguably doesn't exist very much right now. Like you to be a hospital in the United States, you have to protect patient records from being breached. But you don't, for instance, have to deploy certain cybersecurity controls to help prevent you from getting ransomed. To me, that seems a little backwards right? That we're so uh, far ahead in medical device cybersecurity, and we're so we're trying our best to protect health records uh, under HIPAA. But at the same time, we're not investing in our uh, cybersecurity infrastructure for hospitals to prevent them from getting ransomed, or when they do get ransomed, to quickly recover so that these attacks aren't lasting weeks to months like we've been seeing. And so yeah, a success story being the FDA, but we got a long way to go. And I hope a lot of the other parts of healthcare learn from what the FDA is doing so that we can kind of raise the cybersecurity of all of healthcare. So it sounds like the FDA cared deeply about medical devices, but are there other government organizations that are starting to worry about cybersecurity on a wider scale and trying to implement ways uh, to regulate that? Or is that just still kind of up in the air? No, that's a great question, Larissa. And it can be a little bit confusing sometimes because I think in some ways, agencies themselves are still trying to figure this out. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, is a branch of Homeland Security that was created to solely sort of focus on national security infrastructure and has a lot of responsibility for some of the industry and public-private sector partnerships and infrastructure-related concerns. There is also a office of the National Cyber Director through the executive branch who kind of uh, puts forth President Biden's uh, sort of views on how we should address national cybersecurity issues. Congress is working on a number of policies and have been for the last 10 years or so, um, including a couple that are specific to healthcare. And so there's kind of this sort of network and mesh of federal agencies and congressional caucuses and groups that are interested in regulating this. I don't think anybody has really seized upon healthcare cybersecurity from the organizational side in the same way that FDA has for medical devices. But that's something that as this topic evolves and as the roles of these agencies are further and better declined, you might see from CISA or uh, HHS in collaboration in conjunction with the Office of the National Cyber Director really kind of working across sectors and across agencies. This is a topic that I feel like comes up a lot now. Um, but how do you think that AI changes the game for cybersecurity? That's a great question. And, and it's totally topical. Uh, you know, Jeff and I, I'll speak for myself. I'm not an AI expert. Uh, Jeff's waded into that far more than I have. But it would be a mistake to not say that it's going to drastically impact cybersecurity from a variety of different ways. One, the tools that I mentioned earlier that we can use to help protect ourselves from malicious hackers can get if you will, supercharge. I know that's kind of almost like a marketing term at this point, but you can leverage AI, machine learning, natural language processing, these types of things to make the tools to fight against malicious hackers much better. So what we'll see, I think, is a almost like an arms race where vendors that make these tools will be leveraging them more and more moving forward. So it's going to help us make a more defensive posture. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that that technology, those advances aren't going to be available for the adversaries. And so I think one of the most widely reported 
common uses of AI now for malicious hackers is to help craft phishing emails that are very tricky. So if your listeners don't know what a phishing email is or a phishing attack, it's spelled PH instead of with an F. And it's designed to leverage the type of attack Jeff mentioned of a social engineering attack to send you some type of communication. If it's an email, it says something like, hey, it's from your boss. Your boss is saying that you need to do this thing quite urgently. You need to click on this link and send some money to this person or click on this link and log in so that you can do some type of thing for the organization, right? It tricks you. It's not really your boss. The website that you click on is not, although it looks just like one in your enterprise, is actually fake. And what it's designed to do is, you know, get you to download something, click an additional link or fork over your credentials, your password, your username, whatever it may be. That phishing email that they write to you, it's only effective if you believe it. And so individuals that can craft really great phishing emails that are convincing to you and make you do that action will be successful. Ones that are poorly written with poor grammar that clearly aren't from your boss or things like that, are you're not going to click on them. So one of the things that cyber criminals are reportedly using now is things like ChatGPT and others to write convincing phishing emails that are tailored specifically to you. So something like use this natural language processing uh, model to figure out some additional information about you, to write a tailored email that does sound like it's coming from your boss, that has a believable premise, is written appropriately with the right grammar, and that they're going to use that generated message to try to get you to do something. That's an example of how adversaries can leverage this technology to trick you and, and, and make you do something that'll compromise your network. So to answer your question, it's undoubted, undoubtedly AI is going to change the game both on defense and on offense and in ways that we haven't even begun to think about. And so it's a scary premise, uh, but one potentially full of opportunity. It's clear we're going to need to focus a lot of energy on this moving forward. Otherwise, we'll miss the boat. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Christian. I just want to point out as well that in addition to AI having an impact on cybersecurity, there's also a cybersecurity impact on some of the AI tools that we use. Um, a lot of the ways in which we're integrating AI into clinical applications um, can often be sort of black boxes where we don't fully understand what the algorithms are doing with the training sets of data that they are using to generate their conclusions. And so in some of these larger language models, um, you have to input a large amount of data in order to train them to be able to perform their functions. And if the data sets themselves can be corrupted or modified, then you may have malfunction or less than ideal performance of the subsequent models. We've seen in a lot of research that things like just implicit inherent biases that filter into training sets can then lead to AI algorithms um, that are not, not as effective on certain races or genders or social situations. So it's important to understand that AI, specifically machine learning training sets, may themselves be targets for different types of cybersecurity incidents. We need to have a plan to protect against that. Super interesting. I hadn't thought that it could be used both for the offensive and the defensive. I guess I was just thinking like the hackers could use it and we wouldn't be able to stop it because it was AI or whatever. But I hadn't thought that AI can actually help us to be more secure. So that's really interesting to think about. Circling back to like the government, what do you think needs to happen from a, like a government standpoint to better collaborate with healthcare in order to strengthen addressing cyber risk? Oh, Jeff, I'm not sure if I'm going to regret this because uh, this is straight to the disaster practitioner's ears. Um, but I feel like I, I kind of foreshadowed this a little bit earlier. You know, I think we need to reexamine the way that we're applying disaster principles into our modern day response plans for cyber. I, I really think we need to look critically at how there are differences because individuals I've engaged with, uh, some of them in the past and this have just said, well, we have this already figured out. We can just need to follow the existing playbook and really not understanding the nuances. So I think that's number one. I think government needs to take a critical eye of, of what they have now and how adequate that would be to respond to the scale of attack that we're talking about, as well as the sophistication. The next thing I think the federal government should do is really, there are a couple things. And I, I think this is open for very healthy and vigorous debate. But the thought of what is the role of the federal government to respond to these cyber disasters from something like the FEMA level, 
I don't think we've yet seen a disaster, a cyber disaster raised to that level that we needed to have some type of state activation and then have a FEMA team go, but maybe somewhere in between, right? That clearly five hospitals going down in a single uh, county can be hugely disruptive. Is there something the federal government could do by way of resources and expertise, as well as maybe tangible uh, equipment, for instance, that would aid those hospitals that are under attack? So I really want to see if there's ways we can explore helping hospitals that are under ransomware attack uh, without having to do a full activation. The other thing is clearly there are hospitals that know a lot about cyber and hospitals that don't. We mentioned this earlier. These are the cyber haves and have nots. The federal government, I think, is in a very good position to be able to help those hospitals recover from ransomware attacks. Even if it's not boots on the ground, it can also be through other resources and expertise to bring individuals there to help them recover. It can be costly, tremendously so. And anything we could give these hospitals to help recover faster is going to translate into better patient care at the end of the day. And then lastly, you know, this is just my opinion. I'm not speaking on behalf of any organization or entity, but I think we have definitely room on Capitol Hill to put together some really bipartisan, meaningful cyber regulation around healthcare. I think we're minimum standards for hospitals is a no-brainer. I think resources to for given to hospitals uh, insofar as congressional allocations of actual money to do these to meet these cybersecurity benchmarks is something that they should look at. And I hope from the government perspective they can recognize that we're kind of only as secure as our weakest hospital. Uh, truly an interconnection of healthcare. We saw this during the pandemic. We've seen it time and time again that if we don't secure all of it, we're really opening ourselves up to systematic vulnerability that could cascade into some really significant failures. That's so interesting. So you're essentially advocating for like cyber FEMA, a group of cyber savvy professionals that can like swoop in when one of these things happens and help the hospital like rebuild. You should start that. Yeah, cyber DMAT. It can be with CISA, right? So CISA can bring some of the technical expertise. FEMA can bring a lot of the operational uh, expertise. I mean, we could build interdisciplinary, interagency teams uh, that really can be effective on the ground, especially for a hospital that has nothing uh, and have done generally a pretty poor job preparing for something like this. They can really make a big difference. I don't see that happening and replicating on a state-by-state -state basis. So I think the federal government's uniquely positioned to do something like this. And we just got to figure out a way where it makes sense that you can scale it. And it doesn't necessarily always have to meet some type of really big disaster level to have the governor trigger the action. Uh, there's a lot of work that has to be done there, but I, I think that would be a really good strategic capability for the United States to have. Wait, so CISA doesn't really get involved at this point if there's an individual like hospital attack? They kind of like are hands off of this? Yeah, so this is, uh, again, a little bit of a, of the black box that Jeff mentioned. When you get hit by, a, when a hospital gets hit with a ransomware attack, there's still even some concern that hospitals are not reporting it like they should be. Right now, to my knowledge, the only mandatory reporting that you have to have, there's been some recent changes, but prior to about a year ago, the only thing that you had to report was whether or not you paid a ransom. You didn't have to report to CISA or anybody that you had been hit with ransomware. Now, traditionally, hospitals reach out to the FBI after they're hit with ransomware. Uh, that's a very common thing that happens. Generally speaking, until recently, the FBI did not voluntarily share that with CISA or HHS. The only thing that then hospitals would have to do is report to HHS if they had a breach of patient records. So if as a consequence of the ransomware attack, they had lost access to you know, a million patient records, for instance, they would have to report that to HHS as a HIPAA breach, as a HIPAA violation and get fined. But the ransomware attack itself, they didn't have to report. Now, there's some talks recently about that's changing and that there's hope and we're seeing some signals that there's better interagency information sharing in real time regarding ransomware attacks where an FBI, uh, the FBI can talk to CISA and vice versa. But we are, are at our infancy at really this cross-agency collaboration. And to be honest, almost none of that involves uh, HHS with boots on the ground. What actually ends up happening is uh, we've seen examples of public health agencies at local governments like state governments and their public health agencies being the ones to respond on the ground. And they're even more clueless uh, on what happens with cyber than, than any other of these government agencies. So what we see is a true opportunity, I think, to, to change the dynamic, to change the 
hesitancy for information sharing, for collaboration, for interagency cooperation, for the end of the day, the focus be to recover that hospital as quickly as possible. But right now, to specifically answer your question, no, CISA doesn't have to respond uh, to that hospital, uh, nor would they likely in a timely manner. Uh, what ends up happening is mostly these hospitals deploy vendors. They pay an outside company to come and help them recover from this cybersecurity attack. And that's can cost tens of millions of dollars sometimes. I just want to provide one small point of clarification there. Um, there was a law passed and signed by President Biden last year in 2022 um, called the Cyber Incident Reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act, which does direct CISA to develop a set of rules regarding the reporting of these types of incidents. And so um, that's in process. So uh, Christian is correct that up until incredibly recently, you were not required to report these um, to CISA, but that's kind of the first step that is being taken right now. That's crazy. That seems like a, a big miss, especially nowadays with changing technology. We had met because of CyberMed. Could you tell me a little bit more and maybe tell the listeners about what CyberMed is and why it's important? Yeah, so CyberMed um, is the name of a conference that Christian and I uh, started in 2017 with a couple of cybersecurity advocates, Bo Woods and Josh Corman. Um, and it has since grown into sort of an, an, an all-encompassing advocacy organization, so kind of moving a little bit beyond just doing conferences to really trying to reach the disparate stakeholders in this healthcare cybersecurity space. There are a number of conferences and activities and groups that have been dedicated to healthcare security, things like medical device security and information security in hospitals and EHRs. There, there prior to this wasn't really a, an event that talked about some of the problems and challenges in this space from the standpoint of patient safety, which is something that as clinicians is very, uh, proximal to us and how we go about our day jobs. But really prior to CyberMed Summit, bringing together doctors and cybersecurity professionals and healthcare delivery organizations and policymakers and law enforcement to all kind of look at this from a slightly different perspective of patient safety, um, we kind of developed a, this event that really provided a slightly different way of looking at this problem. And what we've kind of become known for are these simulations that we develop. So the doctors who are listening and the nurses and clinicians and people who have trained in medicine are probably very familiar with using simulation as a learning modality to drill for very rare or very high stakes type of events. And at the time, we took a lot of the security research that had been done by some of our colleagues who are hackers on the medical devices that we've talked about, like insulin pumps and pacemakers. And we took that and said, what would it look like if a patient actually presented with one of those problems and wrote simulations that did just that and then brought as part of this conference, um, completely unsuspecting ER doctors, often residents, which was very unfair um, and kind of mean, but we brought them and put them in these simulations and said, hey, take care of this patient. You don't know what's going on, but surprise, it's going to be related to a cybersecurity vulnerability. And so CyberMed began in 2017 with these simulations. We've since uh, expanded beyond our institutions of University of Arizona and then UC San Diego to work with George Washington on uh, a number of policy events that you, Larissa, have wonderfully helped us with. Um, and so it's kind of just this cool little conference that bring together people who are in medicine and people who are in cybersecurity and um, just kind of talk about some of these same issues over a couple of days, do a couple of simulations, have some cool speakers, um, and kind of hopefully um, expand awareness and collaborate on some problems. Well, what else should we know about cybersecurity? What have we missed? Larissa, you did a fantastic job uh, kind of encapsulating all the meaningful stuff here. I really appreciate it. The only thing I'd leave uh, is again uh, the last plea. I'm the only one asking for things uh, during this podcast. So for, forgive me, I'm going to ask again. Uh, the next time you get some type of cybersecurity training or there's some new tool that gets released that's going to bother you a little bit uh, on your workflow, just know that it's there for a good purpose. And for the most part, it's becoming harder and harder to defend healthcare against these types of attacks. And so you can do your part by being diligent, by doing that training, paying attention to your email, uh, having that critical eye and ear towards these adversaries that are trying to take down your hospital. And for that, I would just say thank you for being cyber aware, practicing good cyber hygiene, and uh, to really then 
take it the next step, become a cyber advocate at your organization. If you find this interesting and you want to help your organization prepare for a ransomware attack, every organization would love for you to go and help them update their disaster plans, their ransomware response plans to help collaborate with their IT departments to understand better what it's like to take care of patients and help inform their processes. And even though uh, some of you out listeners out there might be interested in actually making a little bit of a career pivot towards this, this, as I mentioned earlier, is a very exciting field with lots of longevity and job security. And so if your interest is is really in cyber and you want to develop that, we encourage anybody you know, to reach out to us and others about how you can do more in the space and become uh, even maybe a potentially part of your career. And so we need more and more cyber talent, that's for sure. Well, this was great. And thank you both again for coming on. I know your schedules are super busy and it's really hard to coordinate, but I think this was really helpful for me personally. I think it'll be really helpful for anyone listening because again, may not think of cyber attacks when they think of disasters, but really it totally is in the same realm and we need to start shifting our thinking to, to think that way. So this is awesome. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having us. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh, and I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. Have an idea for a topic to discuss or know someone that you think would be great to interview on The Disaster Project? Send us a message about it. Email thedisasterprojectpodcast at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Can't wait to read them.